Hey, y'all. I'm Erin Haynes, the host of The Amendment, a brand new weekly podcast on gender, politics, and power, brought to you by the 19th News and Wonder Media Network. You've probably heard the news that this election year, our democracy is at stake. On The Amendment, I'm breaking down what that actually means, specifically for the marginalized folks who depend on our democracy the most. This is a show that dives past the headlines and gets clear on the unfinished work of our democracy. Listen to The Amendment now, wherever you get your podcasts. From Wonder Media Network, welcome back to Women Belong in the House. I'm your host, Jenny Kaplan. We're fewer than 50 days out from Election Day in what feels like the highest stakes election of our lives. This season, we're zeroing in on some of the reasons 2020 is so unique and how all that's happening this year is affecting the women brave enough to step up and run for office. Here's Wendy Schiller, who you also heard from last week. Professor Schiller is the Royce Family Professor of Teaching Excellence in Political Science, Professor of International Public Affairs, and Chair of the Department of Political Science at Brown University. She was one of my favorite college professors. I think what's different about 2020, it is the intersection of very vibrant social movements with intense, very clear partisan divisions. And you have had intense partisan divisions in the past, but they haven't always intersected with massive social movements, multiple social movements. So you have the women's movement, you have the Me Too movement, and you have certainly Black Lives Matter among others, but you also have the movement to reform immigration and the movement to reform our treatment of people who are here undocumented. So I think you see a lot of on the ground social movements coming at the same time as you see really, you know, the pinnacle of the battle between the very right wing Republican party and the increasingly left wing Democratic party. And this doesn't happen all the time in American politics in a presidential election. They happen separately over time, but not together. All those things on top of the pandemic. This election, the conversation has shifted in powerful ways compared to the midterms and 2016. This season, we're doing a virtual road trip, trying to understand what's happening in key states across the country. Last week, our first stop was in eastern Pennsylvania, District 7, a swing district in a swing state. Today, we're heading west to the great state of Illinois, about 45 minutes west of Chicago, to speak with someone who longtime listeners will recognize. I'm Congresswoman Lauren Underwood. I represent the 14th District in Illinois. Illinois' 14th District is suburban and rural. It's a geographically large district and includes seven counties. There are lots of strip malls and farms. It's 80% white, about 3% black, and about 10% Latinx. The balance of the district's constituents is made up of people of East and South Asian heritage. The district voted for Barack Obama in 2008 and for Romney in 2012. In 2016, Donald Trump won the district with 49% of the vote, compared to Hillary Clinton's 46%. Lauren Underwood was elected for the first time in 2018. She was featured on the very first season of Women Belong in the House. For those of you who maybe haven't found us yet, here's a bit of a recap. Lauren Underwood ran in 2018 against six older white men to win her primary and eventually win the general election. She broke norms based on her age, gender, and race. The fact that as a young Black woman, Lauren won her race 
challenged previous incorrect assumptions that people of color could not win races in majority white districts. Since the 116th Congress's swearing-in in January of 2019, it's been a bumpy ride. You just wonder, could it get worse? Because <laughs> all of these have been like so extreme, right? Like there had never been a Congress that was sworn in during a shutdown, and it turned out to be the longest shutdown in federal government history. You know, it culminated in impeachment, but it began with the Mueller report. And even throughout the spring, it was just a, a tough conversation to have with our community. And so I'd say it's been extremely difficult. You know, I've learned a lot. I think we've been able to get a lot done to help our community around some of these large events that have happened concurrently. And, you know, I'm just excited to have been through the pressure cooker, so to speak, <laughs> so that, you know, I feel like we've experienced pretty much everything you can as a member of Congress at this point. And we survived and, you know, quite frankly, thrived and been really effective. When I spoke with Lauren two years ago, the top issue that nearly every candidate talked about was health care, especially among Democrats. This time around, the country is obviously still focused on health, but the focus has shifted to public health. The degree to which that's the top focus also somewhat varies depending on where you are in the country. I think that's going to be district specific depending on what is happening with COVID in the district and what happened this year. That's Wendy Schiller again. So we have, we know that in the farm states and some Western states that COVID wasn't really that, it was a problem, but not a huge problem. It's a huge difference, right, between the East Coast and the West Coast and the Southeast and Southwest. So where you are will make a big difference in how you run your campaign. Rather than healthcare per se, which was the only, I think, unifying national issue that Nancy Pelosi and the Democrats sort of stressed. They said, other than that, you can run a local campaign, but focus on healthcare. This will be public health, which will be related to healthcare. And they will just ride the wave on that. I promised I would help you with healthcare. Now I'm gonna promise you, I'm gonna keep you safe in terms of public health. Your kids will be able to go to school. We'll be ready for a pandemic. This is a community and this is public health. And this is what the Democratic Party is all about. It will come back to that original issue, but it will be transformed into the idea of public health, not just individual health insurance or access to health care. Here's Representative Lauren Underwood again. So, you know, the shift to public health really means there's this new virus, highly infectious, that people don't know that much about, that is killing people all across our communities. And people are deeply worried about someone that they love catching the virus, their ability to get treatment, their ability to get tested and know for sure, have confidence in those test results and get the results back in time to make a difference in the outcomes that their loved ones experience. And, you know, people know the name of their health department director. And that's someone that was, you know, pretty anonymous pre-COVID. And so that's been a dramatic shift from the conversation that we had been having about how expensive healthcare is in our country, right? And these things are related in that we need free COVID treatment because people can't afford a week in a hospital. They can't afford a week on a ventilator, right? But they're not the same. And the level of fear and anxiety that the American people have around this virus and their ability to get care is something that is like palpable in communities. It is the top concern even higher than their economic situation, right? And so for communities like mine, where we've had a healthcare crisis and an economic crisis concurrently, the whole time that COVID has dominated our country, I am so deeply disappointed 
that, you know, our colleagues in the Senate, our colleagues in the Trump administration have not been willing to make the level of investment in our public health infrastructure to meet the needs of this moment because the American people are crying out for help, just help. Their federal government has not stepped up to serve them. For Lauren, fighting to improve and protect our access to health care was an integral part of her first campaign and of her career prior to running for Congress. The summer after third grade during a swim lesson, Lauren's heart started racing and she ended up being diagnosed with a heart condition. She was inspired by that early experience and by later opportunities in high school and college to become a nurse and to enter the field of health policy. Lauren interned for Senator Barack Obama and for the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. She got a master's in public health and a master's in nursing from Johns Hopkins. After graduation, she joined the federal government, first as a career employee and then as part of the Obama administration as a senior advisor at the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. So, you know, I'm a nurse, and in my career, I've had a chance to serve the American people, uh, extending health care coverage to communities by working on the Affordable Care Act, as part of the Obama administration, working on public health emergencies and disasters like Ebola and Zika and the water crisis in Flint. And so, you know, I bring a familiarity with these emerging infectious diseases and how to help communities prepare for and respond to and recover from these either natural disasters or infectious diseases when they enter into communities. And so it's been interesting working with my colleagues because even among people who share values, a lot of folks in the House run towards politics, right? They want to win. They want to be right. They want to get the recognition. And everyone's first instinct is not always to communicate that healthcare message that gives their community agency, that gives that listener or that viewer in their community the sense of, I can do that. I can protect myself and my family. I can wear a mask. You know, I can wash my hands. I can stay six feet apart. And that that can, you know, significantly reduce the chance that I get infected. We're even trying to begin having the conversations around the vaccine. And that is such a messaging challenge at this point in time because of the rise of the anti-vaccine movement and people who, you know, believe in vaccines but don't want what they would consider to be a Trump vaccine. And so, you know, that vaccine hesitancy is something that poses a real threat to our ability to move past COVID-19 once that vaccine becomes available. Lauren introduced a bill last month called the Community Immunity During COVID-19 Act. The legislation is geared towards giving health departments resources to start talking to people about the safety and efficacy of vaccines. And in talking with my colleagues, it's just like they're supportive of the idea of vaccination, right? They want to make these investments, but that's not what dominates the conversation, right? The facts, the science, the evidence, the healthcare message is not the dominant message coming out of Capitol Hill every day. And I think that one of the things that I've been trying to do is continue to reinforce that before you go to politics, before you go to, you know, how the president might have let folks down or why we need Mitch McConnell to do something, we also have to lean in on updates that empower American families to recover, heal, and protect themselves. Lauren's time and impact in Congress exemplifies why it's so important to have diverse representation in all kinds of ways, including career background. Here's Ashanti Golar, president of Emerge America and host of the Brown Girl's Guide to Politics podcast. 
When I think of Representative Underwood during this time, it goes back to her background, she's a nurse and we're dealing with a health pandemic. How great is it to have a nurse in Congress? The same with Congresswoman Kim Schreier, who's actually Dr. Kim Schreier. She's currently the only woman physician serving in Congress. How great is it to have a woman doctor in Congress who knows what's going on? So it's the fact that we need these women from different backgrounds who are in Congress, but I think particularly in the healthcare field, because women's health is something that is constantly being debated in Congress. What we have access to, what we can and can't do with our bodies, and those decisions are being overwhelmingly made by men and men who don't have a medical degree. So it makes me happy to see Congresswoman Underwood and Congresswoman Schreier having that background. And Congresswoman Underwood has been a great leader when it has come to healthcare issues from COVID to maternal health. I asked Lauren about a highlight of her time thus far in office. Her answer underlines this point. So the highlight was our work on maternal health. Starting the Black Maternal Health Caucus, growing that caucus in less than a year to over 100 members, bipartisan, and introducing a comprehensive suite of legislation called the Momnibus with Senator Kamala Harris as our Senate lead to save moms' lives because Black women are three to four times more likely to die as a result of childbirth in this country. And when I think about the opportunity to make change, I've learned that it's not the things that are just so inherently controversial, but perhaps some of these issues or problems just haven't had a congressional champion to put it on the agenda and build support around the solutions. And so, you know, for this issue to now be part of Biden's agenda and part of the party platform and part of, as we look forward, something that we can feel pretty confident is going to be a priority item in future Congresses, I'm really excited um, because it's not about like, oh, we did that or I did that. It's like, no, we're going to save lives in a way that we have long needed to do this work, right? The disparities have been around my whole lifetime, 30 years. Are you kidding? Like we have a, we're overdue for this work, but it's renewed my faith that change is possible and that the system can still work as flawed and broken and mired in gridlock as the United States Congress is. That's something that gives me hope. Representative Underwood shared that everything about the job in Congress and on the campaign trail changed with COVID. More on that and on talking about race in the 14th District after the break. I want to tell you about an awesome platform called Bonfire that we've been using at Wonder Media Network. Bonfire.com is the easiest way to design, sell, and order premium shirts, all virtually and risk-free with no out-of-pocket costs. On Bonfire.com, you can upload a design or use their templates to promote a fundraiser to your community. They'll take care of printing and shipping the finished product to your buyers. I worked with the Bonfire team to create a Women Belong in the House t-shirt for all of you to campaign in and rock this election season, and I've truly been living in it ever since. Their fundraising feature lets you accept additional donations on top of shirt sales, and you can even send all proceeds directly to your favorite nonprofit. If you're a political campaign, 
Bonfire is also compliant with all campaign finance laws and can give you additional insight into your supporters, making fundraising nice and hassle-free. Bonfire is trusted by the Women's March, California Women's List, Rock the Vote, and Wonder Media Network. You can check out the Women Belong in the House shirt we designed at wondermedianetwork.com bonfire. Make sure to tag me on Twitter at Jenny M. Kaplan or Wonder Media Network on Instagram at WMN.media and any pictures of you rocking your Women Belong in the House t-shirt. And sign up for Bonfire's awesome platform to use your own platform for good at wondermedianetwork.com bonfire. For candidates, running during COVID adds serious hurdles. Here's Ashanti Golar again. At the beginning of March, we had to have the conversation about how are we supporting our women during this time? Because campaigning got completely turned upside down. So we introduced our Campaigning Through Crisis series where we did five webinars and we talked about, okay, you can't knock doors during this time. How are you reaching voters? If you have a lot of college students in your district, you can't count on those votes anymore because those students are back at home if they were from out of state. So you have to recalculate your win number, which is the number of votes that you need to win, your 50% plus one. What does that look like now? Who do you have to put into your universe that you were able to exclude before because you had these college students now you got to go find more voters. We know that voting is going to be very different. In several states, we saw that primary days got changed. In Wisconsin, we didn't even know until election eve that they were actually going to have their elections the next day. How are you messaging during this time? How are you fundraising during this time at the time that we're recording this, we know that there's almost, I think it said like 30 million Americans that are about to be evicted. And how are you talking about COVID during this time and really using your campaign as a resource for people to find information and to be helpful to the people in your district? Like many of us, Representative Lauren Underwood said COVID totally changed the ways in which she gets her work done. Everything about the job has changed with COVID-19. You know, I had prided myself on being everywhere all the time. That's what I would say in my district. And so I have a really large district. It's seven counties in Northern Illinois. It's half rural. And so we would just show up places all the time, be driving around, meeting new people, having town halls. You know, I did like 15 or 16 town halls in one year. And so we had all these plans to do it again this year. And then COVID happens. And so not only can you not go around and show up in communities, but it also limits how you meet with people, the range of people that we're able to interact with, the stories that we're able to hear. It's forced us, my team, to be really creative about how we maintain that same level of outreach and accessibility within this community, even with the pandemic. And so we've done different things. We've been doing telephone town halls. We do Facebook Lives and you know things like that. But you know, I miss people. So throughout August, we've been home for about three weeks. And so during this time, I've been doing what we call outdoor office hours, which is, you know, an opportunity for us to meet one-on-one outside in a park. I sit there for like two hours and constituents sign up for these 10-minute slots and they tell their stories. And we're getting such an interesting mix of people. It's very different than the way office hours used to go. 
And so, you know, I'm finding that the level of need has increased in our community. People can't pay their mortgage. People are hungry, right? And, and the food bank doesn't have the resources they need to even meet the need in our community. You know, folks are needing this enhanced unemployment insurance. And, you know, they're very deeply concerned about the Postal Service. And all of these issues are things we never heard about before. It's just been different. And so I've appreciated the opportunity to leave and lead and to serve in a different way, but it is like drastically different than pre-COVID. Well, showing up was something that was very effective. You know, like literally standing in people's living rooms or cul-de-sacs or soybean fields and having these important conversations allowed us to connect with people who hadn't heard from a candidate who shared my values in a long time. So in a COVID environment, that outreach looks different. And it's, it's been a challenge to adapt to a virtual campaign. But, you know, we're gonna keep, we're gonna keep moving forward. Campaigning in person is particularly important for women candidates and for candidates in swing districts. Here's Wendy Schiller again. I think that women are known to have, or at least in political science, sort of combinations of leadership style and campaigning style. So a lot of it is typical, you know, political campaign candidate style, but some of it is based on personal outreach and retail politics, really conveying warmth, for example, is supposed to be a very important female attribute. And it's hard to do that digitally. One of the reasons Kamala Harris, I think, was picked as VP is that she does jump out of a screen. And you used to say TV screen, doesn't matter about TV anymore, just a screen. How do you break that barrier? That's a very difficult thing to do. So it will challenge candidates who don't have that kind of digital charisma. And that can be an extra disadvantage for women who rely on that sort of personal one-to-one or one-to-five or one-to-ten interaction in small group settings. So I think that's one big difference, and it could be a disadvantage for women. Another enormous shift in conversation this year is the energy across the country supporting the Black Lives Matter movement and calling for police reform. I asked Representative Lauren Underwood how conversations in her district about race have changed since her last election. In the 14th, we didn't have a lot of routine conversations about race, not in an overt way. You know, I'm Black, but my district is less than 3% Black. It's over 80% White. And so, you know, I'm Black, everybody knows I'm Black. They know my parents, my parents are my constituents. They come to a lot of events, you know what I mean? It's a thing that people know. It's just not been a topic of conversation. So with, you know, this summer, this community conversation that we've been having about race and racism and Black Lives Matter and white supremacy, it is something that has taken over. I mean, there have been marches and rallies and protests and calls to action in every community across the 14th district. They've, many of them have been led by high school students who, you know, would usually be in school organizing Spirit Week, <laughs> right? But, you know, due to COVID, folks have been home and, you know, it's just a different dynamic. And so it's caused a lot of examination. And one of the things that I'm really proud of with our George Floyd Justice and Policing Bill is that so much of the conversation has been framed as if policing reform is needed in specific communities only, right? That's an urban problem. That's a, that's a big city problem. But the reality is the reforms in the bill will change policing in my community. And it's forced all of us to understand, you know, what the policies are. And if there's not transparency, why not? You know, what does that chain of accountability look like? You know, what does justice even mean 
to each of us? What does equity mean to each of us? And these are the conversations that we're having throughout the 14th Congressional District. And so, you know, it gives me a lot of hope. I am certainly very, very encouraged. And it is a key issue that's top of mind among my constituents. It's really interesting to hear that it's not really something that you talked about, it sounds like, at all last time on the campaign. Well, I thought I would. But, you know, what I found was my age and my gender was much more of a dominating topic of conversation than my race. Because, you know, with my election, I became the first woman. I became, yes, the first person of color, but also the first young adult to represent my district. And so when I launched my campaign, I was 30 years old, 30 year old single woman working full time. And folks had a lot of questions. And so we just would talk about it all the time. But race just really, I mean, I guess it was obvious to people. I don't know. They didn't have a lot of questions about it. Ashanti also spoke about navigating conversations about race on and off the campaign trail. There are people who feel that we shouldn't be discussing race and kind of wanted to go away. But there are also people who never discussed race because they felt that there wasn't a need. It really didn't impact them. And now they're realizing, oh my gosh, my eyes have been closed to a lot of things. So they do want to have those conversations. A lot of these people don't know people of color. So they're going to ask the people of color they're able to get in proximity to. So I can understand why she's talking about it more, but I also have to talk about the flip side being a black person is it is exhausting. It is exhausting to talk about all the time and for us to be the ones who constantly have to educate people. I tell people Google is free. There's so many books. We know y'all are reading the books because they're on the New York Times bestseller list. So I would say, yes, not surprised that they're talking about it. It is something that they have to talk about. But I do hope that people are being mindful about the questions that they're asking them, the things that they want to know, because it is exhausting and it is a burden to have to talk about all the time. We saw in 2018 that when people from different kinds of backgrounds in every sense of the word run for Congress, their campaigns look and feel different from the status quo. The friction that comes from challenging the status quo doesn't stop when you get elected. As we talked about last season, representatives contend with those challenges once they get to Congress, too. I mean, what's clear to me is that the House of Representatives was not built for young women. Everything from, like, the schedule to processes, nothing, like, they don't use email, really. Prior to COVID, I didn't have the cell phone numbers of my colleagues or, like, committee chairmen. Like, the freshman class, we had an email chain, we had, like, text chains and, like, all that stuff. But, you know, among the other people, that just is, like, not how we would routinely communicate. And that is just so out of touch from any other professional (laughs) environment that I've ever been in. And so, you know, that is just fundamentally very different. I would say I have not received the same level of attacks, threats, violence that some of my other colleagues have, the other young women of color and young women just period, right? So let's let's back up. Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez, youngest woman. Abby Finkenauer, next youngest. Then there was Katie Hill and there was me in terms of women and age. And then when you think about people who are under 35, women, there's maybe, maybe 10 of us. 
maybe. And so this is a very small group and pretty unprecedented. And so when you look at the experiences of those of us in that small group, I mean, it's been a real challenge to come into this institution and thrive, but we have all made a mark. We've all been extraordinarily successful in the way that we would define success, right? You know, I hope that we have inspired other young women and girls to see themselves in these places. And especially when it hasn't been done before, right? Like, what does it feel like, look like to be that kind of a trailblazer? And it's okay to be different from even the others who are in your peer group, right? So like the women under 35 in the house, like we don't hang out all the time, right? But that's okay because, you know, you don't hang out with everybody who's in your graduating class all the time or, you know, you're your peer at work all the time. But it doesn't mean that we're not united by values and goals and a commitment to try to make a difference. Women of color in office face major hurdles. It's wrong and unfair. On the positive side of things, the fact that these women are doing what they're doing has inspired others to feel like they can do it too. Representation makes legislation better and helps to firm up a better pipeline for future leaders. Here's Ashanti. I think it goes back to representation matters. Having their voice there is essential. But even if I just talk about the squad, we see how they were demonized, how they're constantly attacked because women of color's leadership is still scary to a lot of people because it's change. And a lot of people are not comfortable with change, changing the world and what that change means for them. So this is how they block change, try to prevent change, slow down change, is by attacking women, especially by attacking women of color. And I think that the squad They're super strong women. They're able to put up with it. But I also hate the fact that we have to say they're strong women. They have to put up with it. They're able to put up with it. I don't like the fact that that has become normalized, that we have to tell women of color, all right, here's all this crap you're going to have to deal with. Like, be strong, grow thick skin, buck up. I, I hate that part of it. But having them there, I think, is the reason why we do see so many more women of color running for office, because they are that representation. And they know that they did it so they can do it. But it's still going to take a long time, even though there's a record number of women serving in Congress. It's still majority white women. So the numbers for Black, Brown, Indigenous women are not where they need to be. We know that we only have Deb Holland and Sharice Davids as are two Indigenous women, the first women to serve starting in 2018. So I think there's just a long way to go, but we're making progress and that's always good. It may be happening way too slowly, but we are making progress. And that progress begets more progress. From having Kamala Harris at the top of the ticket to record numbers of women and women of color further down ballot, the momentum of 2018 continues. The question now is whether gains in representation will hold. With all of the social movements, health risks, and misinformation out there, who's going to show up to vote? 
What will turnout be like during what looks more like an election month than an election day? Here's Ashanti Golar again. I think everything is in play at this point because it's also just a new electorate. And I mean that saying not only the role of young people, of the new American majority, but once again, just like in 2016, where you saw a lot of people starting to pay attention to who their elected officials were after they saw some of their elected officials on stage with Trump. And they're saying, oh my gosh, I can't believe that this person represents me. You again now have people who are paying attention to who their representatives are because they're dealing with homelessness. We just had schools reopen. A lot of families didn't send their kids back to school. So they're trying to figure out how do I homeschool but maintain this full-time job that I'm lucky to have? How do I just keep my family safe overall because this pandemic continues to rage on? So a lot of people in the country are upset. You know, also had to recognize there's a lot of people in the country who think things are going just fine. But because of that, you really have to realize that every single office is in play and we have to pay attention to it. Next time on Women Belong in the House, we're continuing our trip westward. We're going to a state that was called a tipping point in 2016 and is poised to do it again, Wisconsin. Women Belong in the House is a Wonder Media Network production. It's executive produced by me, Jenny Kaplan. Produced by Grace Lynch and Liz Smith, with special assistance from Louisa Garbowit. Original theme music is by Miles Moran. Talk to you next week.